Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 25, 2016, and this is episode 1772 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday, so it's Listener Feedback Monday. This is where you send me emails with TSPC in the subject line, and then put something like article for Jack, comment for Jack, thought for Jack, Jack, you suck, whatever you want to put, and that will bring it to my attention that, hey, this is for the show, and I'll take a look at it. The best format is give me your link in one or two sentences summarizing what the heck is important about it. At the most, hit the return key and give me all the details you like, or if you don't have a link, just give me your question, your comment, your point in one or two sentences. This helps me screen mail faster and makes it more likely that your mail will be selected for inclusion on a show just like this. Before we get into those, let's go ahead and uh, tell you what we're going to be talking about today, just kind of give you an overview of the subject matter today. It's a long list, and that means some of these I'll go in depth like I usually do, and some I'm going to go really quick with. I want to start trying to bring as much variety to these Monday shows as possible. So today I actually have a question from someone that says, could GMO? Genetically modified organisms and, and what Monsanto does with seeds or some other company does with seeds. Could that ever be actually good? Could we ever consider it regenerative or could it ever line up with permaculture ideals and ethics? It's not an easy question if you're honest about it. It really isn't. It's not cut and dry. There's a knee-jerk reaction that I want to have to that because of the people doing it and what they're doing. But... As an honest person, you have to actually examine the question, not with how people are doing something, but could they? It's totally different. I'll give you my thoughts on it and some concerns. Um, I also have a, a story for you that is basically the only good that I see coming out of Ass Clown Circus 2016. Of course, that for everybody that's not initiated yet. And what we talk about here would be election 2016. I think there is something good coming out of this election. I have one little media segment to play for you, and I'll tell you why I think it's actually good. Um, next up, guy asked me a question on the best all-around shotgun. As we'll see, this is not so simple as you might think. But I bet you the answer that I would give as the closest you can get to that would be the answer many of you guys that are informed gun owners would give as well. Uh, they are the two top-selling pump shotguns of all time. Most of you now that are gun enthusiasts know exactly what my answer will be, but you may not understand yet how I'll approach this question from a standpoint of all-around, because it's asked from an, a standpoint that means really all-around, and sometimes we need to come to grips with the reality that if something is all-around, then it generally doesn't excel at anything. Or if it really excels at something, it may not excel or even do well at other things. But we can get close with the shotgun, and we'll talk about that today, too. Next, I have a question about home brewing. Can we force carbonate stuff in a bottle? You know, like you take a keg and you hook it up to your CO2 tank, and you have your keyser like I do, and you five gallons in there, and you add that CO2, and you jack up the pressure, and you know, a couple days later, or even a day later, depending on how you do it, you got carbonated stuff. It's ready to go. Can you do that in a bottle? Yeah, but not the way that the person asked the question wanted to. More on that in a bit as well. Someone asked me about making butternut squash soup, because I talk about it all the time. We serve it at our workshops. 
The actual exact recipe belongs to a gal named Sandy who's helped us out at our workshop several times. So I can't give the exact recipe. I feel wrong about that because she feels like it's her recipe. And I, you know, if somebody doesn't want you to do something, though I don't know how valid that claim is, I don't do it. But I will give you the basics of how to make a squash soup, and from there you can take it away. And it's really not complicated. Uh, that'll be a quick one. Uh, I'm going to talk about a, a website that is better than the website called Ethereum that I mentioned in a Jeffrey Tucker article about a week ago. And I'm going to give you some ideas and thoughts about how that might be used to implement things like virtual nations and um, avoiding using the state's systems for things like conflict re res resolution. But I'm also going to admit that I don't fully get how it all works yet and why that might be a really good thing. Next up, remember we started out with could G GMOs ever be good? I got a new GMO, Genetic modifi Modified Organism Technology, coming from Monsanto that certainly doesn't sound safe. Now, of course, they say it's totally safe, totally safe. Not approved yet, not in use yet, though we've been lied to about that before, but I'm going to just assume that's the case as they cover this. But imagine if you could get a plane and load it up with a chemical and fly it over a field and spray a chemical that would land on a particular weed species and alter its genetics so that it dies, or land on a particular insect species and alter its genetics so that it dies at the, at, the, at the RNA level, if you could do that. But then you said, we can do it so that it's targeted, so that you could spray it on your dog or your cat or you, or a ladybug or whatever, and it wouldn't do that to them, only the targeted species. Sound a little bit too good to be true? It does to me. We'll talk about it and what it could mean. What if you live in a country where you cannot own a gun, period, the end infinity? Or if you can't own a gun, it's like a shotgun and it has to be locked up in a case and you're known for having it so the cops actually come randomly and check it to see if it's where it belongs. Yeah, that's called the United Kingdom. Would you ever make the case that in such a situation that an air pistol would be a good self-defense tool if somebody was trying to get into your door? Or would there be better options? We'll take a look at that today, too. What about this place called Liberland? What's it all about? And is there going to be a hostile takeover of it by libertarians who have until now just basically said we're going to go there, but they're actually going to go there in a droves and make it a reality? And what might that mean if they pull it off? I have a quick success story from you from a person that's advertised in the TSP business directory doing business with other members. I have a question about debt that can't be avoided. What if you want to go to medical school? What do you do? How do you handle it? How do you mitigate the consequences of that debt? Steve Harris has a new prepper group with meetings in western Pennsylvania. I'll tell you how you can find out more about that. And I'll finish up the show with a story about a 17-year-old kid who's six months from graduation, halfway, not even six months, halfway through his senior year. Like he's already got the first half knocked out. Quits. Quits. Just walks away. I don't want to graduate. Don't care about the diploma. Screw it. By the way, 4.0 GPA. Decided he wants to start his own company, first year in business. Not his business does. He draws a salary from his business of $300,000. And then, at the end of the show, a throwback to classic TSP with our song of the day. Sound like a good show? I hope so. I'm looking forward to making it the best show that I can for you. Before we do that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year 1772. 
Those of you know that what happens, you know, what happens in 1776 and also what happens in 1775, you know it's getting real, right? And some of it's going to be in the history segments at this point. We have Granville Sharp frees the slaves. That actually happens in the United Kingdom. We have the Pine Tree Riots, and we have the American Credit Crisis. Yeah, the American Credit Crisis, 1772. Yep. But we're going to read the Pine Tree Riots. A law has been in place for decades in New Hampshire that pine trees larger than 12 inches in diameter are to be marked with a hash arrow and left for the king's shipbuilders to be used as masts. Masts, not masts, okay? Needless to say, but we'll say it anyway, this law has been a royal pain in the neck for farmers who would like to clear their land for additional farming or to build housing. Licenses are available to cut down the trees, but few have bothered. The royal surveyors hadn't been enforcing the law until now. They finally noticed that a number of the trees had ended up in local sawmills, so the mills are fined. When the mill owners at Weir's refuse to pay their fines, the sheriff goes out to arrest Ebenezer Mudgett, who is leading the protesters. Mudgett convinces the sheriff to wait until morning so that he can arrange bail. And instead, Mudgett arranges for 20 townspeople to beat the sheriff with switches. He's run out of town, humiliated. This is called the Pine Tree Riot. And by the standards of the time, a riot is exactly what it is. The rioters hightail it out of town before the sheriff returns with British troops. Eventually, a number of the offenders give themselves up and are caught and fined 20 shillings, a little over 160 bucks each. This is considered a light fine given the offense, and the sheriff is livid. My take by Alex Shrugged, when you receive a trial by your peers, they tend to give you a break as long as your offense is understandable to them. It is not exactly jury nullification, but, it was a, but there were a heck of a lot of trees in New England at the time. If the king wanted the trees, he should have paid for them. By marketing, marking them as his own, he was imposing a tax on the landowner. And in the 1770s, American colonists did not react well to taxes from the king. Regarding the symbol of the pine tree, most people remember the American battle flag with a lone pine tree. There are several versions of the flag, but the meaning would have been clear to the Navy. They required pine trees for their own shipbuilding and repairs. The motto on the flag was an appeal to heaven, which is a quote from John Locke suggesting the revolution was right, uh, right of the people when normal options were closed to them. Here's my take on this. Um, I chose this today because it's one of those things that just shows how much the government was controlling the colonists. We've been taught in schools, no taxation without representation, which means since you get to vote today, just shut the hell up. And don't bitch. And if you don't like it, leave, right? Nonsense like that. If you don't vote, you can't bitch, et cetera, nauseam. Okay. <sighs> I, I want you to think about what these people did. So basically, you're going to get a fine from the government because you cut a tree down. And not because the tree was protected for wildlife or some shit like that. Because the, the king's like, I might need that tree someday, so you just let it sit there until I want it. So I can put it on one of my warships and do whatever the hell I want to, like make sure that you follow my rules. Even though you're over here on your own, you could die, and nobody will be there to help you, really. Okay. And the the, the, the colonists and the, the entrepreneurs of the time say, you know what, bullshit. We've had enough of this shit. And they get a bunch of people, and they don't kill the guy. They don't tar and feather him. They beat his ass with switches and chase him away like a little punk bitch. Now, of course, like little punk bitches always do, what does he do? He runs off and gets bigger bullies and says, I was a little punk bitch and couldn't handle myself. And you want me to do your will, and I'm pissed now, so bring your bullies with guns and come back, and let's do something about it. And the colonists like just hauled ass and weren't there. But obviously he knew who some of them were, which is why they probably showed up and turned themselves in. And in spite of all that, what do you think would happen today 
if a sheriff or law enforcement officer came to arrest you. Prearranged arrest, by the way. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna have Bell ready so you can take me in and what have you. You had 20 people there and they beat his ass with switches. And let's say to make this, you know, work for modern times, they disarm the guy first. They like come up behind him, they grab him, they take his guns away, and they, they just like, they render them inoperable and give them back to him. And then beat his ass and run him away. Well, everybody would be charged with a felony, wouldn't they? Why, in this time, you could have had your, your neck stretched from a rope for this. But because there were trials in place, because people did know each other, and people shared a common situation of this oppression, they're like, yeah, we got to appease the tyrants, so you guys pay a fine. By the way, we'll probably have some people who can help lend you some money if you don't have it, and, and we'll just kind of, yeah, there you go, we punished them. By the way, if you do it again, we're going to beat your ass with switches again. You have to wonder, what if these guys had all worn, like, you know, disguises or hoods or something when they beat his ass so he didn't know who they were? And what if the mill owner had been, like, you know, having tea with somebody with, like, ten witnesses? It, it might have even worked better. Who knows? But this is the thing. When people hear, like, a long list of grievances in the Declaration, they, they tend to not understand how long the list really is. And I ask you today, is the list of grievances longer? I say it is. Is it time for a new American revolution? Well, I say, folks, it's time for an insurrection, a peaceful one. We take back the power by eliminating the need for the system and the legitimacy of the system that oppresses us. And I believe we can do that. We'll talk about that in the future a lot, I'm sure. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. So with that reminder, right, we're, we're doing voting now for the Tuesday show. So the show is really your show now. You've got Feedback Monday. You've got Listener Call in Thursday. You've got the Expert Council that are all your questions on Friday. Tuesdays are just Jack shows. You get to pick them. Ten topics up for vote. Man, it's razor thin. You should vote if you haven't voted if you want a voice in the show. Let me tell you what's going on right now. Uh, 20 items to add to your preps. This is for the first Tuesday show of next month. 16.6%. And then there's going to be four more. Well, here's the rest of the voting. Setting up a remote property or bug out location has 12.4% of the vote. But finding the right property to make into a homestead has 12.3%. And they're literally separated by a single vote. How to determine which business you should start also has 12.3%. And it's in a vote tie. Exactly a tie with finding the right property to make into a homestead. Uh, number five show, which would be the last one, if, if things stay the way they are, training dogs to fit in at the homestead, 11.1. But aquaculture for protein production at number six is only 12 points from being in fifth place and getting included. And talking to friends and family about prepping without sounding like a loon is only 19 votes from being included. 
So this really is a real election that really matters, unlike the Ass Clown Circus, and you really might want to consider being part of it. I'm just saying. Okay? So get on over and vote. There's a link in the show notes all the time. The most recent show notes will have the current open and operating poll. If you ever see a link that says vote for the Tuesday shows, and you click on it, and the poll's closed, that means you're voting for an old poll that's already done. So first question of the day comes from Justin. Justin says, is GMO... Genetically modified organisms compatible with permaculture. I look at it as a technology whose purpose could or could not be used for good. But I was recently discussing this with Matt Powers, and I brought up a couple examples like repopulating the black rhino or the American chestnut becoming blight-resistant. And he tells me that both can be done without GE, genetic engineering, or genetic modification, and then told me genetic contamination would undermine permaculture and there is no, absolutely none, place for GMO or GE in permaculture. Curious to hear if you've changed your mind since your show a year or two ago on the subject, where, by the way, I said that maybe we should consider these technologies for things exactly like developing a true blight-resistant chestnut, American chestnut, and restoring the American chestnut. Not a Chinese chestnut hybrid that's mostly American, but actually bring back the original tree. That, by the way, we screwed up, we damaged, and we made basically extinct. So is it incumbent upon us, since we did this, to fix it if it can be fixed? Or would fixing it actually not fix it and make it worse? Okay. So here's how I feel about this. And, and, and this is the reality. So I love Matt Powers, but his opinion doesn't mean that that's the end of the story. Just like my opinion doesn't mean that it's the end of the story. So when we look at this, and Matt's answer is, well, we can do that without genetic engineering or genetically modifying things. I, I think before we get into that, I should at least define for people that don't know and are subject to the propaganda of the GMO companies, what is genetic modification and what is genetic selection? Because they blend the two together to confuse you. What Monsanto and their ilk will say is man's been doing genetic modification for 10,000 years in agriculture. You know, the first corn, so ente, was this little bitty scrubbly thing that was pretty much useless. It was individual kernels were wrapped in this paper like husk and it was terrible. And through selection over time, it became all of the wonderful heirloom corns we have today. And what we do is no different. No, what you do is different because you take genes that do not belong in a corn and you inject them into the genetic level of corn using generally something called a transmugenic virus. So you actually take a virus that you infect, and then that virus takes the infection and transmits it through the cells of another cell and implants instead of the virus itself. It's been modified, so the virus actually attaches new genes to the genetics of the corn when those original genetics may have come from something like a cotton plant or a crab or a fish or wherever they found whatever they were looking for. Okay, that's genetic engineering. That's genetic modification. Genetic selection is exactly what it sounds like. We breed things and we look at it and we determine through viewpoints of what selection we want, we then reproduce that, and we reproduce it again, and we reproduce it again. GMO is also not a hybrid. When you see a, a, a tomato plant, it says it's a hybrid. All it means is two varieties crossed. That's all, like, a, like, a, like a shepherd and a collie make a puppy that's a shepherd collie dog. That's all a hybrid is. It's not scary. It's not genetic modification. It's no different than, uh, again, shepherd and collie, a labradoodle, a labrador and a poodle. That's all that it is. So we got to be clear when we're answering this question what we're actually talking about. 
So then we have to say, since it's just a technology, like a gun, could good people use this technology for good things without terrible consequences? And my, my instinct when looking at it like that logically is most certainly you would think that it could work. Okay, My trust level of the people doing it is absolutely below zero. And my belief is if they ever actually did it for good, for true good, in a good way, that they would use it to sell the evil technology from a propaganda standpoint to a higher level. I do not trust them. So much as I think a gun can be a good tool, I think the government having too many guns pointed at its citizens is wrong, and Monsanto is worse than government. They, they really are in many ways. They are, they are one of the most disgusting, repulsive, revolting companies to ever exist on planet Earth. And I do not trust them at all. But let's look at a technology that they've developed and say, is that in of itself inherently evil if, we, if they had only done that one thing? So Monsanto does what's called gene stacking. And that means that we don't just alter the DNA of a corn one way. We alter it five, six, ten different ways. So that it, it, it's now genetically far different from the way that it started out. One way we might modify it is to make it able to have a pesticide sprayed on it. So we make soybeans that can be sprayed with Roundup, or corn that can be sprayed with Roundup, or glyphosate. And then we drench those plants in glyphosate, which is a known potential carcinogen, and people eat it. There's a problem. I, I think if you don't think that's a problem, you don't understand the issue. But another technology that was done was the ability for the corn to produce Bt, or Bacillus thungosus, which is a bacterium. This bacterium is not harmful to humans. Organic corn farmers have been spraying their corn with Bt for about as long as we've known that it works on cornworms and caterpillars and things. It is a virus that infects these types of insects and does really does not harm just about anything else in the ecosystem. So if you make corn produce that, then is it inherently evil or is it inherently different than spraying an organic crop with BT? And the answer is yes. And this is the unintended consequences, even when things seem to be okay. First of all, we don't know that BT is completely harmless to human beings when you're eating tremendous amounts of food that all contain corn, that all contain it. In, in larger amounts being ingested continuously because the whole food supply is, is, is rampant with it. But the, maybe, let's say that it's okay. Let's say that it really does no harm whatsoever. And it might not. There's not a lot of evidence that it does, even in large quantities in human beings, if we're being honest instead of reactive. Okay, but what it does now, when you spray something like that on organic fields, it has a limited effect. In other words, some worms get some of it, some don't. And you don't wipe out the population completely, so there's still some losses, which seems bad. However, when we do that to corn, where every single niblet of corn, every single bite that that caterpillar takes is going to kill the caterpillars, we wipe out the caterpillars, except for, except for a tiny, tiny remnant of caterpillars that are not affected by T, the ones that be T, the ones that are immune the ones that have a natural immunity. And then they slowly build their population back up, and now the technology doesn't work anymore. Worse, 
the technology used to work great for organic producers no longer works well for them either because we've, we've decimated the population of pests to the point where all of them are resistant. In the interim, while that population was low, we've decimated the population of predators who normally fed on those because there were so few left. And you got to think about it like the ratio on the Great Plains, or not the Great Plains, the Af African Plains. You got to have a shitload of wildebeest to support one lion pride. So if you take the wildebeest land almost extinction level, and it takes some time for them to rebound, many of your lions and subspecies of lions, etc., may go extinct before it was all game. Let's think of it that way, because many of these insects are specialized. They only eat one or two different types of pests. So now you've wiped out the predators, or you've decimated their populations because you've starved them. This is the unintended consequences. Could we, as intelligent beings, use genetic modification to modify plants in ways that actually didn't have these unintended consequences? And again, if you're objective, I think you have to say, well, possibly we could. We can't just say no, right? Because that, that means we're, we're ignoring reality, we're ignoring science, we're ignoring many things, and we're being emotionally reactive because we don't trust the people doing it which I do not trust the people doing it at all. I just don't, and you shouldn't either. But that doesn't mean that somebody couldn't use it for good. For instance, if all we did was modify corn genetically so that it was more drought-resistant, so we use less water, and we did that in a way that didn't have this catechismic effect on the rest of things, could that be beneficial? And the answer is it probably could. Can we guarantee there's no unintended consequences? No, but there's a lot of things we can do where we can't guarantee unintended consequences. Is there a likelihood that it will be used for good and be compatible with regenerative agriculture, permaculture, etc., true ethics uh, right now? No, it's not. There's nobody doing it that's taking that approach, period. Now, Monsanto has a technology that they're working on in other things, especially the vegetable market, that seems far less awful, and it is genetic engineering, but it is not genetic modification. They have a technology, and this I'd be far more open to at least exploring, where you take 10,000 cabbage seeds, and they get scanned. And the scanner is capable of determining which seeds will have which qualities. And then those seeds can be pulled out And we can create more of them faster than just planting them, selecting them, and replanting them. So now what we're using is technology to accelerate genetic selection. And we're using very high-end tech to be able to do that. That seems far more benign. Because all we're doing is taking the work that, that, that everybody in permaculture says we should be doing and doing it faster. But again, do I trust the people doing it? No, I don't. And we'll leave this topic because there's another issue with GMOs coming up later in the show. And with that, I want to play something for you. This is going on to the next topic. Is there any good to come from Ass Clown Circus 2016 at all? Maybe there is. What I'm about to play, you, play for you now is a couple MSNBC commentators basically blowing a gasket when they hear how rigged the Democratic primaries are. And specifically, Bernie Sanders winning Wyoming by over 12%, and then losing the delegate count. Just give a listen, and I'll tell you why it actually may be beneficial. 
Oh, I think you need to do a teleconference from New York. Maybe. <laughs> All right, Bernie Sanders' winning streak continued over the weekend with a victory in the Wyoming caucuses on Saturday. Sanders beat Hillary Clinton by 12 points, 56 to 44, notching his eighth win in the last nine okay. nominating contests. Okay, okay, what do we do here? <laughs> I mean, it so, sounds so like he's call. winning. He, he's won eight out of nine. Yep. But he's here, and look, and look, he wins by 12 points. I tell you, I would not do well as a Democratic politician. <laughs> he wins by 12 points. He may not even pick up a single delegate. Yeah. It's seven to six now with a remaining delegate to be decided later. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That's a crushing victory. I know. And listen, I think that with the superdelegates that they have, I think she only has to win 30% of the, you know, she has to get 30% of the vote in the remaining uh, contest. I mean, talk about voters feeling like a system well, might be and, rigged. And, and, Why and, are you if, even voting? If, if you're driving right. a car right now, we've been talking about rigged systems. We're putting up right now a graphic. Bernie Sanders wins 56 to 44% in Wyoming. The delegates rewarded. Hillary Clinton, 11, Bernie Sanders, 7. Why does the Democratic Party even have voting booths? No, why? This system is so rigged. It feels that way. And I think, if, you know, they fall into line better than our voters do. But I can see some of the same emotions boiling over at their convention. But we always talk about voter turnout and how important it is to do your duty as a citizen. There's absolutely no reason any of those people voted in any of There's those not. states, I mean, right? I, what's the justification Please, for that? someone tell me. These, these, these are the rules. No, that's yeah, not a good I answer. That, tell me why, why those people needed to go vote. Because it, they don't, their rigged. votes don't the matter. Turned out, it's not rigged. These Does there, do their votes rigged. matter, Mark yeah, Albert? they do. Do the votes How? matter? Do they count in some Depends way? where you turn out. How? I don't oh, think it's only in some parts of the country it matters. System, but it's not he like won by 12 percentage points and I lost the delegate. I don't think out. it's a good system. All I'm saying is it's not. Do you think it's Matthew? Do you think that the Democrats matter. and Republicans change their delegate allotment processes after only, the cycle? Only if the winner of the White House decides he or she wants to change it, which is unlikely. These are the rules. I don't just, all really. I'm, all I'm saying is it's not, not like asking. the Cruz people or the Clinton people have gone in and fixed it or rigged it. Okay, but let's, just, I'm talking about the Democrats for now. Fair. Let's talk about the Democrats for we, now. We didn't say that. Here right. is a party feels bad. who sends their activists out and have people chattering on TV and chattering on talk radio about voter disenfranchisement Sleepy if you make somebody show a picture field. of themselves. This same party tells voters to go straight to hell when they, they, they select somebody by 12 percentage points and end up letting the other candidate who lost by 12 percentage points win the most delegates. That by definition, is voter disenfranchisement. So all, I mean, it is a rigged system on the Democratic side, even worse than the Republican side. And I don't know why Democratic voters put up with it. If I'm you say saying, those are the rules, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lunge I agree with everything you said, except I wouldn't say it's rigged. It's not rigged. It's disenfranchisement. It's not one person, one vote. What do but you call it when voters going to the voting booth 
does, doesn't matter at as all. much a as mess, insider. A Millions. messed up system. That is a rigged. It's not rigged. It is a system rigged against voters. It's a system rigged against people that go to voting booths. It's a system rigged against people that go out to caucuses. It is a system that is rigged in favor of the rich and the powerful and the politically connected. Bernie Sanders wins by 12 percentage points. Show, show, show. So he wins 56 to 44. Now let's look at the delegate count. He didn't get any super Put him up. Okay. And one, after right? winning by 12 percentage points. He's losing. He loses Wyoming. He's losing. Where it counts by primary. four delegates, 11 to 7. Now, John Heilman, if that is a system that is not rigged well, against voters and rigged in favor of the rich and powerful, please tell me one that is. Well, I don't really totally understand this graphic. So that's part <laughs> of the super delegates. That's right. The super delegates. I mean, look. That's there's a now, there's a big part of me that simply wants to remind you that when you hear all this stuff, the best thing you can do is is think of the following and, and just realize it's, it's not really as important as they've led you to believe. Yes, yes, um, it is the Ass Clown Circus. That's what I call the election, uh, especially this year. And I was listening to Free Talk Live the other night, which is a great radio show, and uh, with Mark Edge and Ian, I can't think of his name, last name. But anyway, Mark and Ian were talking about how this is like, if you're a radio host that does talk radio, on lo- you know, regular terrestrial radio, that this is the greatest gift they've ever had as an election like this, because there's so much stuff coming out of it to talk about every day. But for the rest of us that are actually just like trying to go on with our lives and, and build a better life and have realized the political system won't fix the problem, it is the ass clown circus. But the good is what you just heard. And I think my favorite part is where the female commentator, and I've got this is like a segment of it for brevity, but I've got the whole video linked to uh, the whole damn thing from uh, the show notes today. This is a little short haired blonde gal that's the one that used to so irate. And when she says to the guy, don't, don't tell me those are the rules again, I'm going to lunge at you if you tell me those rules, that's the rules again. Because that's not the point. I understand that. And it's the same shit that came out of Colorado, where Colorado just said, you know what, we're just going to cancel the popular vote, keep our, our delegates unbound, throw our caucuses, but we're actually going to make our decision irrelevant, not even pay attention to the caucuses at the convention, and we'll just decide who our people are going to vote for and just write the voters out because we're afraid the voters won't vote the way that they're supposed to vote. And this is going on in both parties now. And you keep hearing the same response from all of the pundits, all of the people, the old guard that want to keep things the way it is, where you're not in control, they are. Those are the rules. Everybody knew the rules. Donald Trump should have got his people in there. He had known the rules since September last year. Blah, blah, blah. It's been like this for 100 years. Whatever. Okay. I'm so sick of that. I'm with this gal. I'm sure we disagree on 90% of things we could ever discuss. I am sick of hearing those are the rules. That's the effing point. That's the point. I, I wouldn't say it's corrupt. It is corrupt. They didn't, but uh, Cruz and Clinton didn't go out and rig the system for themselves. I I understand that they may have leveraged a few things to make it a little worse, but in the end, the corrupt system favors people like a Clinton. Okay, and and I do agree with one of the things that the commentator said. You can tell these people are big time liberals. 
believers in the Democratic Party. As bad as the Republicans are, the Democratic system is worse. And what she said is there was no reason for any of those people to vote. And we talk about all the time how it's our civic duty to vote. And we believe it, don't we? There are many of you right now that are already starting to get angry with me because I'm pointing out the hypocrisy in this. I'm not going to give you my thoughts on it today. I'm going to link to another article. And uh, when, I, when I link to that article um, in the show notes, you can go read it. It is an article entitled why you, why, you should, why you Have to Stop Voting Now. And it's on a website called FUBAR and Grill. And for those of you that are ex-military, you know what FUBAR is. Um, but it's by Mark E. Smith, and it's called You've Got to Stop Voting. And you can disagree with that if you want to, but I challenge you to read the article. But the, it's way too long to include in this show with as much topic as today, but I'm going to read the end of it to you. I shared this on Facebook today. And it starts with him being basically banned from speaking for an activist group that he wanted to speak with because he's against voting. So he writes them a letter, and this is the end of his article. I waited a couple of days, and when I got no response, I wrote to ask why. This was the answer. Quote, I did not respond because I have nothing to add to your excellent feedback one way or the other. All valid arguments for your case. But most of us, and I do admit to including myself, do not act on reason. We act on gut. That sort of makes you a lonely person, but courageous nonetheless, keep speaking out. End quote. In other words, it is saying that I'm right, but since it makes people feel uncomfortable, I still won't be allowed to speak. I have been speaking out for six years, but since most organizations are in some way political party candidate or electoral issue related, they will not allow me a forum. In fact, most activist organizations are nonprofit corporations themselves, so when they claim to be opposing corporate rule or specific corporate actions, it appears they have an inherent conflict of interest. I think the most important thing is, in other words, I'm right, but since it makes people uncomfortable, I won't be allowed to speak. That's where we're getting to with voting. People are accepting the fact that your vote doesn't count. Your vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter. It's mathematically irrelevant, and in some instances, it's not even mathematically relevant when your guy wins. But saying so makes people uncomfortable. How, how horrible that we be uncomfortable when our programming is challenged. How horrible is it that we are uncomfortable? Isn't it much better to believe something that's untrue because it makes us feel good? That's the approach people are taking. And I'm also going to link to an article I wrote before the last midterm elections. I'm not going to read it on the air today. I, I, I challenge you, especially if you were angry with me when I wrote it, to go read it now with hindsight and all of my claims about what the 2014 elections would actually result in. And with hindsight, knowing that I wrote the article weeks before the election, with hindsight, now seeing it as a forward-looking piece, examine it and start asking yourself, does it really matter that we vote? And when people throw out the cliches, you're surrendering, what other choice do we have? Love it or leave it, it's the way things are. You have no right to complain if you don't vote. By the way, on the last one, that's like saying you have no right to complain about being raped if you didn't fight back hard enough. I have a right to complain about anything where people take my property against my will. But you know what? Even complaining doesn't matter. What good does it do to complain? 
What you need to be doing is building a better life for yourself in spite of this system. But I challenge you one to read my article, but read Mark Smith's article on how actually not voting in time could make the government seen as illegitimate. I think it's a long way out. It's not why I'm choosing not to vote this time around, but I have to admit he makes a good case for it. Take a look at both articles and let me know what you think. By the way, if you're going to insult me for choosing not to vote, just remember, I never said you should not vote or you're not going to vote or I, I want you to not vote. I said that I think you should consider what I say and what this other person says. Make your own decision. And I did tell you your vote doesn't count. And before you're going to come back to me and prove me wrong on that, do it with math. Do it with math. Mathematically prove to me that your vote counts. And maybe I'll believe you. Let's take another one. And just to cover my ass on this one, I just said that I didn't tell you not to vote. And then the article I linked to said, you've got to stop voting. That's that author's statement, not mine. I want you to do what you want to do. So don't, don't throw me in league with him. What I said is he makes a good case for his point, and I'd like you to examine it with an open mind. The way I just examined genetic modified organisms with an open mind, when I really hate the people behind them. That's, that's being open-minded. That's being logical and rational and not being gut-led, but being mentally led, just determining for yourself with logic and evaluation what to actually think for yourself instead of just being led by emotion. So next question comes from Marty. Marty wants to know, what is the best, quote, all-around shotgun, end quote, His details are, I'm looking to buy a shotgun. I recently shot trap. Really enjoyed the sport of it, but wanted a shotgun that would double as a home defense tool. With a 28-inch barrel, it's quite unwieldy for self-defense. Uh, I was also thinking about a 20-gauge rather than 12. Is there any reason not to go with the 20-gauge? How easy is it to swap barrels on the Mossberg 500 or Remington 870? And those of you in the beginning of the show know I'm probably going to come down and say, either of those two pump shotguns is the best you're going to do for what you're asking me. However... Let's start out with the concept of, well, I went trap shooting, and that was great, and I liked it. I want to do that more. Okay, if you go watch trap shooting competitions, every single shooter is out there with an over and under, which is a double barrel where the barrels are stacked on top of each other. Okay, Now, there may be some individual, where, where there's trap competitions where they only break one clay, and it's every shot's at one clay. And those you might see people with specialized trap shotguns that are break-action single shots. Okay? But that's all you'll see at the highly competitive level. Why? Best tool for the job. 28-inch barrel is a long sight plane. The way, And if you've ever actually shot sporting clays, trap, birds over a bird dog, you know that as good as things like the 870R or auto-loading shotguns like the Remington 1100, Browning Auto 5, all these great guns, as good as they are, they just don't quite have that instinctual lock-up pointing of a properly fitted, especially if you go to a gunsmith to get a properly fitted break-action shotgun with either a single-shot barrel or over-and-under. Even the double barrels that are nice, they're not quite what the over-and-under profile gives you. Okay? So for trap shooting, skeet shooting, etc., you want, if you have a choice, an over-and-under. That's the best tool for the job. Does that mean you can't enjoy skeet and trap and sporting clays with a pump shotgun? Not at all. I shoot sporting clay courses with a pump gun all the time. I'm one of the only people I see out there doing it. Uh, but I do it because it's the gun that I carry when I go hunting most of the time. So I, I like to practice with what I use. 
so I wouldn't fault you for it. But if you actually wanted like a really good gun for uh, shooting uh, ski or trap, then that's not the 870, even with the longer barrel. Now, let's say what you do want to do, you want a longer barrel with a little bit tighter choke for shooting trap, which is a little bit different than skeet, because trap is usually longer shots, all right? And, and, and you're, you're, you're using a, a more constricted choke for them because you're shooting at longer distance targets. Um, then, you know, getting a 28-inch barrel for a Remington 870 and, like, a 21-inch barrel or 18-inch barrel with a cylinder bore for home defense, that works, There's nothing wrong with that. So you can do the same thing with a Mossberg. I think the Remington 870, especially uh, if you're going to use it for trap, you know, the Wingmaster, the nice one, not the kind of, you know, uh, utility level, um, you know, express, is really the way to go. How hard is it to swap the barrel? If you can't do it, you probably can't maintain your shotgun. I mean, with the 870, it's, it's literally undoing a thumb screw, pulling a barrel off, Sticking the other barrel back on and putting the thumb screw back on—that's how that's how quick it is. It's actually once you get good at it, it's faster to do than it is to explain it. So it's very very easy. So that works. The reason I would recommend the 870 or the 500 is just the opinion of the market over time. You have to go back a long way to not find the 870 at number one and the 500 at number two in total sales for an annual basis. A way, way long, like before they were, they, before they were. They're just that good. They're that practical. They're that affordable. They're that dependable. They're that reliable. They last that long. So I think you're in the right frame of mind, but just understand that in reality, you'd be better off having a gun for trap if you're going to do it a lot. If it's going to be something you do one weekend every two months, screw it. But if it's going to be something you're going to get in like a club or a league and you're going to compete with your buddies and stuff, then, then I would save up the money and buy a dedicated tool for that. And then you can just go out and buy a tactical, tactically set up, very affordable Mossberg 500 for your home use. If you're going to try to do it both ways, I'd go with the Remington. Personally, I just think it points better when you're looking at hitting moving targets. I just think it's a better balanced gun. For home defense, they're so equal that I would go with, you know, there's really affordable, already ready-to-go Mossberg 500s. I see them at gun shows, brand new all the time, new in-box for $300 to $350. Bucks. So if I was going to split them, I might do it that way. Um, but I'd pick the 870. Now, is there any reason to go with 12 versus 20 gauge? For home defense, and I'm about to have so many people pissed off at me, it doesn't really matter. doesn't really matter. You, get a, you, some, you shoot somebody... With buckshot or a slug, which is what you should have in a gun for home defense and a shotgun, from a 20-gauge at home defense ranges, and you've got plenty of lethality. And in fact, you've got a lighter gun that you probably will enjoy shooting better that will do the job well. Okay, From a standpoint of in the field knocking down birds or breaking clays, 12-gauge carries a larger payload. And in the, weed, the words of Peter Hathaway Capstick, Anything the 20-gauge can do, the 12 can do better. But still a lighter gun. So if you're shooting trap, 12-gauge has the advantage. If somebody ever came up with a sporting clays course that was more realistic, like where you're not just strolling and talking and bullshitting from you know thing to thing, and it was like a long course that puts you through the rigors of being in the field for a day of hunting, you might find you like the 20-gauge better just because it's a lighter gun in general. So it, it's six of one, half dozen of the other there. 
When it comes down to it, though, the most universally available ammunition in the world is probably 12-gauge shotgun. So I would always err to the side of the 12. And if you like a 20, some of these, these guns are very affordable. Maybe you pick one up. Um, as a dove hunter, I love to hunt doves, it's hard to be, you know, like a, a Browning White Wing or something like that, 20-gauge over and under. It's just a beautiful little gun, about 1000 bucks brand new. Um, best all-around shotgun, though, pump. You had it right there in your question, 500 or 870. Uh, just don't expect it to be as all-around as sometimes I think people th think they mean when they say that word. Next question says, this is from John. John says, can you force carbonate homebrew directly in a bottle, or do you have to have a keg? I personally use Grolsch swing top bottles. The answer is you can force carbonate beer, cider, mead in a bottle. You absolutely can. You absolutely cannot do it in a Grolsch swing top bottle or other glass bottles. It's not possible, not to my knowledge. So what is forced carbonation? Forced carbonation is the is the way most brewers carbonate instead of bottle conditioning. So bottle conditioning is we're going to put our beer into these Grolsch swing top bottles or standard uh, cap returnable bottles, the ones that don't have twists off. We use a capping tool. We add a little bit of sugar, so the beer's done or the mead's done or the cider's done. We add some sugar. We put it into our bottles, and there's a certain ratio to do. I won't get into that because it's too complicated for a short answer. We cap the bottle. We put it aside. And within a couple of days, it kind of looks cloudy, and then it clears out, usually within a week or two at the most, and there'll be a little layer of sediment on the bottom. That's because all the yeasties went, ooh, sugar, and it come back, they come back to life, and they start munching down on it, and they, they, they convert it to alcohol, not much, doesn't really change much, because it's such a small amount of sugar. But when they do that, they release CO2, and that increases the, the atmospheric pressure of CO2 in the bottle, and then that CO2 has no place to go, so it dissolves into the liquid, and you get a carbonated beverage. So with forced carbonation, we just attach something like a, a, a tank full of compressed CO2 with a regulator so we don't blow up the bottle or keg or what have you, and we can control how much pressure we put in there. And if you take a keg and put it into a keg system and put it at a dispensing pressure of like 15 PSI, it'll take like two or three weeks to carbonate, okay, to where you're really going to like the way that it is anyway. But what you can do is you shut off your other kegs, and you jack that one up to like 50 PSI after you cool it, by the way. And then you disconnect it, and you take it out, and you lay a rug down on the garage floor, and two guys sit there and kick it like a soccer ball back and forth. And you do that for a long time, and you shake it, and a lot of the CO2 goes in. You stick it back in there, you hook it up again, you blast it back up. You do that a few times, and you can get it carbonated really, really well in about an hour, or maybe two or three times during a day and for one day, and you get it done. And there's varying levels of how you can do that. So can we do that in a bottle? Yes, we can do it with pet bottles or plastic bottles, like like your Pepsi Cola comes in, and they make a little cap, or you can make your own, and you fill that bottle, and you put the lid on it, and then you attach the same connection you would from your keyser or your keg system to it. So it's basically a little fitting molded into a two-liter pop bottle cap, and when you ratchet that down, we turn that up to a certain pressure. Get some information before you do this, because you can blow the bottle up, clearly. And it will actually, since it's a small amount, relatively rapidly force carbonate. Now you have a plastic bottle full of carbonated beer or cider or whatever. 
if you are a home brewer that builds brews five gallon batches, this may be practical when you're done with a batch, you're going to bottle it normally, but you want to take a batch to your buddy's house or something like that. Or you just don't, you know, you, you could get enough two liter bottles at every batch you could carbonate that way. Remember, these bottles are made to hold carbonated, highly acidic beverages. That's what they do. So they, they work fine for that. And once it's carbonated, yes, when you're happy with the carbonation, you can remove the cap with the fitting, put a regular cap back on it, and it will hold carbonation quite well, as long as it's full. Just like soda, as you drink down the level, the carbonation that's in the liquid now has space to move into the bottle, and it will get flatter and flatter. Have you ever noticed you can take like one little bit of soda out of a soda bottle, seal it up, put it in the refrigerator, and like two weeks later it's still nicely carbonated? But if it's half empty, no matter how tight you cap it, it can't. That's just because there's space for the CO2 to be released into the side of the bottle now. So it's not that it got out. It's just it went into the open space in the bottle. So with one of these little caps, you can take a half full bottle, throw your little thing back on it, and as long as you leave the fitting cap on there, you can pressurize it a little bit and it won't go flat. Cool, huh? So you can do that, but you can't do it with glass bottles. And I'll put a link on Amazon to where you can get a cap like this to go with your CO2 pressure. But you need a, I've never seen them for a pin lock. They only work for, I've only seen them for a ball lock. I'm sure you could build one for a pin lock yourself. And you have to have a CO2 tank and you have to have a regulator. You don't have a regulator and you just can't open it. I mean, all right. So I'll put a link to uh, an article on how to build your own, um, Uh, pressure carbonation tops for two-liter bottles and where you can just buy them pre-made. So when I found those links, I also found a link for a guy that was making his own using a tire valve stem and an air compressor. And I guess you could do that. I'm not so sure about that one, though. He's uh, actually adapting the, uh, the, the CO2 keg to latch onto uh, a tire valve stem. I guess you could do that, too. But if you have a um, CO2 system and you have ball lock hardware, The ones that are pre-made on Amazon are like seven bucks a piece. So I, I have a hard time seeing that you'd make them for much less, especially when you factor in your time. But links for all that stuff in the show notes. Next up, making squash soup. So I'm going to give you off the top of my head the way we make squash soup without giving out the technical, accurate, complete version of Sandy's recipe. So we use about a dozen apples and two large butternut squash and about... Uh, two big giant onions, like the big ones, like four medium onions if you use onions. And the way we do that is we take the squash and we cut it into halves and take the seeds out. We rub it with oil uh, and then we roast it in the oven and we bake it for uh, about half an hour at 350, whatever it takes to make it soft. And we also do the same thing with the apples. So we core the apples, we rub them in oil, and we bake them. I personally like to, to, to peel the apples with a peeler and then use a core tool and core them. And that way I don't have to worry about dealing with the peels later. And so then we take the onions and we put them in uh, oil, usually olive oil, and we saute them till they're translucent. Okay, And then we take the roasted apples and squash once they're out of the oven and you peel the squash and cut it into small pieces And then we put all of that into a pot. And then we add chicken stock. I, I'm going to tell you, I don't even check the you know vaulted recipe anymore when I do it. I just add chicken stock so it looks about right. Everything's covered. And then we simmer it until we've really cooked the squash and apples down to be even softer. 
And then we take that in batches and we process it in a Vitamix till it's completely smooth. And then it's done. You heat it up if it's cooled down by then. That's it. There's just not really much to it. And it's fantastic. Uh, and a little tip. If you have a Costco card, and to me, if you're a prepper, you should have a Costco card. So much better than Sam's Club. So much more healthy options, organic options, things like that, especially, I feel, anyway, at Costco. Now, I haven't been to a Sam's in five years or more. Uh, we had to use Sam's in Arkansas because there was no Costco. I wonder why, Walmart. Anyway, um, they have a lot of organic produce at Costco. And one thing they have are these big clamshells of peeled, diced, organic butternut squash. You cannot buy organic butternut whole squash for less than that. If you're growing your own, that's different, of course. They're a great crop to grow. We grow some every year because they store so well. But if we need to buy some to make soup, we go get the pre-diced stuff. And then we just rub that in oil. And the other thing, when you rub the, 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 the squash uh, and the uh, apples in oil before you roast them, sprinkle them with salt and pepper. And, and that's pretty much it. And you can do season to your like. Play with it. Uh, make the recipe your own. But that's that's pretty much it. It's squash, it's squash and apple soup. Uh, and chicken stock is the base in it. And, you know, here's here's my thing. Use less chicken stock than you think you need. If your end product is thicker than you want, then add some chicken stock and bring it back to a simmer to get the, the, the consistency that you're looking for. Don't sweat this. Really, really simple. That's how I am with all my cooking. Really simple. And if you're kind of kind of person that needs a recipe, just Google butternut and apple squash soup, and you'll find tons of recipes. And pick one that sounds like something you would like and give that one a shot. But uh, in your cooking, guys, just don't be afraid to experiment. Just learn to develop the techniques. And like, the, I'll tell you what really makes that soup. It's not the ratios. There's a lot of apples in that soup, so it's kind of sweet. You wanted it less sweet. Use less apples. You wanted it more of a tart. Switch from like we usually use like uh, a Honeycrisp or a Fuji or something like that. We've done it also with Granny Smith, and we get more of a tart taste like that. You know, you, you adjust it as you see fit. Roasting it first is what does it. That gives it that 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 level of flavor, that additional level of flavor. So the next one um, comes to me from Martin and. I, I, I do a little bit of the tone here bugs me because I didn't recommend anything, but I, I think this is a good email and I'm not real upset or butthurt about it or anything like that. But just understand, sometimes if I read an article to you from someone like Jeffrey Tucker, that doesn't mean that I'm saying, hey, go do whatever this guy said, right? I'm just exposing you to the information. Uh, just wanted to comment on your mention of Ethereum on episode 1763. While the evolution of de in decentralizing transaction records, Ethereum proposed is a very useful endeavor, it would be worthwhile to mention that Ethereum is in, a spe in specific has had a huge number of setbacks, including the loss of some of its founder in a take-the-money-and-run way, not to mention that although it has been around for nearly two years, it only came out of beta a few months ago and only officially supports the command line so far. I would be remiss to recommend this to anyone with the amount of risk involved that this may never take it to a functional state, let alone a widely supported one. Uh, maybe I took that wrong because he said I would be remiss. I think he, he kind of read it the first time he said you should be remiss. So, okay, fine. Something that was founded around the same time but has much more tangible results is NXT and is it's associated uh, and it's associated NXT at NXT.org. It already has a sizable user base close to the feature set that Ethereum plans to have when it comes out of beta. 
these technologies truly represent the future, but we have to take caution that people that people trying to profit irresponsibly by taking a good game don't take all of us for our hopes and dreams. Keep up the good work, uh, Martin. So here's my thoughts on this. First of all, I think we should have as many people doing as much as they can with this as possible. I am not currently ready to say that anybody is the horse to back in any of this stuff. I really am not. And part of it is because I don't know enough about what it is. And I don't even understand how to use some of this stuff. But NXT seems to be basically tokens that can represent Bitcoin or cash or anything. So it's asking me to download it. I've signed up as a member. I don't really understand how this works yet. Um, I need to play with it. And it, I think some of it, as far as implementation and development, of it, because I see this more like a platform that you do something with and something that does it by itself, okay? But here's what it says on what is NXT under NXT co tokens. Assets, currency, and tokens. The NXT blockchain provides a complete, stable, secure, and trustworthy record of transactions within the NXT ecosystem. Enabled by an advanced blockchain architecture, NXT can be used to create, distribute, and use two kinds of user-defined tokens, as well as supporting the native NXT cryptocurrency. In order to do this, NXT provides a selection of powerful tools uh, to do these To these create customized tokens on the blockchain, either as assets or the more complex monetary system currencies. These tokens, this is the magic, can be used by projects to build the bridge from the virtual world of digital currency to the real world. A token can represent literally anything, property, stocks and bonds, commodities, or even concepts. In short, the NXT network can be used to trade anything. Tokens can be used in many other ways that purely, than purely trading, though. A token could give voting rights in an organization, for example. This is interesting to me. This is because this is exactly what I've been talking about. Exactly how does it all work? I, as I've started to peruse this site, I think you're getting closer and closer to like what you call a GUI. A graphic user interface where you can almost use like what you call Ajax technology to like set up, a, set it up to make it point click and, and, and run like so that even I could do it. But I don't think we're there yet. And I don't fully understand exactly how this would all work. And I consider myself one of the more economically switched on people in the world. Okay. So this is like a monetary representation. I totally get the point. But the how, the implementation, etc., is where I stick. And when I say that, I'm all, what I'm also saying is, and I, I, I try not to brag. I know sometimes I sound like it because I'm confident in what I'm saying, but I really am kind of a humble person overall. But when it comes to how the modern monetary system works and what that means, and then why something like Bitcoin works, because it's the same but different. I, I think I understand that better than most people, but yet I don't totally get how to implement this. And part of it's because I'm not a, I'm not a web developer. I know what APIs do, but I don't know how to use them, that type of thing. Unless it's in a, you know, a, a dummies version. Like it's using an API, but all you do is enter a, a code. Security token, by the way, they call it sometimes. So that it interacts with the API that's already there. Somebody set it up for you to interact with, right? But when it actually comes to actually doing this stuff, I don't get it. Here's why I think that's good. If I don't get it, Imagine how much the people inside the system controlling the system don't get it. You know, that's why Bitcoin was able to do what it did, because they didn't get it. If they would have got it, if they would have understood what it really was and how powerful it was going to become, 
then when it was in its infancy, they would have probably figured out to crush it, how to crush it. But they didn't get it. They just didn't get it at all. They still don't get it. And I get Bitcoin now, right? But what I, what I, what I see here is that NXT could work, for instance, this way. Let's say that I decided that I wanted to offer some something approaching shares in TSP. Now, to make it a public company would cost more money than I will ever be worth in my lifetime. There's no way that I could do that. But I wanted some sort of, of official shareholders program within TSP. And maybe that we, we use that to create a TSP coin, survival podcast coin. I don't think I would call it that, but let's just say we did that for, for simplicity's sake. And I could then create two types of tokens. Shareholders token that gave you certain voting rights and certain privileges on the site. And a actual coin that would somehow be fungible in exchange with things like Bitcoin and other currencies. And it would maybe have a basis in Bitcoin. So it would have a, a Bitcoin basis, some sort of a, a floating Rate. So maybe then what I could do is I go and I purchase Bitcoin with my own money that comes out of profits from the company. And then I take those Bitcoins and I use them as a basis for, which is exactly what I came up with Virtual Nations long ago, guys, right? But this is a much smaller thing than just a Virtual Nation. So I put away uh, 500 Bitcoins valued at 400 bucks or whatever they are, like 20 grand. And I put there. And then I then I say, we're going to create 500,000 TSP tokens that are backed by that Bitcoin. And I leave them linked. And then I use those to pay dividends to my stakeholders. Technically, the FTC has a problem with this, but can they really do anything about it? I don't know yet. I think they may be able to more so because TSP is an actual physical business right now. But what if we did that with a virtual nation? What if we did something just like that? We all got together for a virtual nation where it's not me. It's everybody. And we all start the concept of to buy citizenship. This is, this is, this is why I like this. This is exactly what I said to do. So we all come up with the concept that citizenship to be, just become a citizen in libertopia.nation, right? Liberty, Libertas, right? This is what I came up a long time ago. The, the name of the country, Libertas. The nation of Libertas. It's going to cost you two Bitcoins. And when you buy your two Bitcoins, they go into something within this NXT framework now. And their, their, their purchase generates a certain amount of Libertas coin. To be used only within Libertas to do business with other Libertasians. All right? I know this is... See, and I don't understand the how, but I understand the what. This is the what. This is the important part. Because you get somebody to build this. And that means it never again becomes Bitcoin unless you leave. And let's say we did this to preserve the stability that it costs you two Bitcoins to become a citizen. And that you can then... Add Bitcoin for some incentive, but if you have to pay two to get in, the most you can do if you want to leave is take one with you. That you're, 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 
you know, and it could be higher than that. I don't know. It would depend on what the, the damn thing could do for you, what it would be worth it. But look at it this way. Let's say I set up a legitimate, not an illegitimate, but a legitimate club, right, where I'm not trying to rip you off for your money. And at this club, you can play golf. You can play tennis. You can sit at the pool. It's like a country club, right, a redneck country club, right, where we don't have snooty rules and regulations. In fact, we forbid those, and we actually keep the snooty people out because we vote on who we let in, right? And I say to be a member of my club is um, $1,000 a year. And you say, okay, that's fine. And I say, but there's a you know, there's a, an initial membership. Let's say it's cheap. Let's say it's $100 a year. You're like, oh, that's great. I'm in. Well, hold on. To become a member, you have to pay $1,000. Okay, fine. So then you pay your membership fee every year. If you want to leave, you're free to leave, but you don't get your money back. Right? You can't leave with your money. But what you could do is sell your membership. And you might be able to sell it back to the club. See, this is the thing. How, how do you make this work? I don't know yet. But those are the ways that you keep it, you keep it working. You keep it functioning. You, you keep a monetary base under it. And if you build it the right way, then voluntarism should take over. Imagine a place where you could go buy anything you wanted from anybody else and, and, and completely in a bubble and no money ever changed hands. A representation of a derivative of a representation of a derivative that nobody understands in the policing world was used to exchange that. Now, if you're buying heroin with it, they could prosecute you for the heroin, I'm sure, especially once it physically is delivered somewhere. But if we were doing things like consulting with each other, any kind of immaterial product, it gets very difficult to police that. And I'm thinking this is the way forward here, but I, I don't understand it yet completely as to how it will work. And one day I'm going to go ahead and download this thing and start playing with it and see how much technology I actually do understand. But I'm really thinking that this type of thing could work. But there's a million questions to be answered. Now, let's say that my assertion that you pay two bitcoins to become a member and you can only take one with you when you leave, something like that, doesn't jive with you. You think you should be able to, whatever you bring, you take with you when you go. Okay, fine. Then you set up your virtual nation like that. See, and that's what I think we need. We don't need a Libertas. We need a thousand Libertas, right? Ten thousand competing with each other for the best ideas to prove which ones will actually work. And also, isn't that harder to police? Right? So if you have one and everybody flocks to it because it's the best, especially in the beginning during that, that, that phase where you're vulnerable, Doesn't that just give a great big place to put the crosshairs? But if there's 20, 30, 40 of them popping up a day, like little bubbles everywhere, and then you start having international trade between those. Yeah. I think it's very powerful. Some of you don't get what I'm saying. I'm sorry. I'm doing my best. This is a topic we should really revisit completely again. But I'm going to put a link in the show notes today where I talk about my concept of Libertas. And then think about what this platform would enable on that concept. And I will have a link, of course, to NXT.org in the show notes. Okay, um, next one is an article on Mother Jones, and it's called New Monsanto Spray Kills Bugs by Messing with Their Genes. In an effort to keep show, today's show, which is so diverse, from being a mile long or three and a half hours long, I'm going to give you the summary of the article, and you can peruse it and read it for yourself. The summary is just that. that Monsanto has come up 
with a new technology. Uh, they're calling RNAi, and the I is in lowercase. It's an emerging science, and it was used by two U.S. researchers who discovered it, and that won them a Nobel Prize in 2006. The concept is the cells of plants and animals carry their instructions in the form of DNA. To make a protein, the sequence of genetic letters in each gene gets copied into a matching strand of RNA, which then float out of the nucleus and tell the next DNA cell how to reconstitute itself and then thereby propagate the species, right, to continue to keep the organism alive. In other words, if you didn't make new DNA every day, you would break down and die, okay? That you have cells dying every day and you have cells being created every day and the RNA are the, the transfer mechanism that bond with, with new nucleic acids and create another strand of DNA. And I'm not a geneticist. I don't claim to understand that completely, but it's the basic stuff you learn in high school. And what this spray does is get into that process and cause the RNA to give the wrong instructions when it tries to make the next new DNA cell. So you have this evil little critter like a corn earworm, and he or the moth species that lays his egg and he's a pupivore gets hit with a little drop of this spray. And that little drop of spray goes in and genetically jacks his shit up, is the best way to understand it. And as he's trying to grow and develop and live and function, when that RNA strand breaks away and goes to the next DNA, next thing to make a new DNA molecule for that new cell and transmit the information. Think of it like a radio transmission, right? This transmission is wrong. It builds the wrong molecule. And no living organism could go along very long if they were building like a completely screwed up next cell. All right? So that's the, that's the claim that they can do this. And it does look like it, it does work. I mean, these researchers won a Nobel Prize for it. That's pretty well vetted before they give you the Nobel Prize. Unless it's in peace. Then they just give you one for getting elected, even though you're bombing kids. That's all right. I'm just saying, right? Nobel Prize in science. Pretty well vetted stuff. So the, the concept now is that they can do just that. They can make this chemical, spray it on a field, and it will only jack the shit up out of corn earworms, not closely related non-target species or ladybugs or, you know, it gets on the food and you eat it. It would The, the article says it would... This is the researcher's claim and, the, and Monsanto's claim. Probably be destroyed in the di digestive system. Probably. Huh. So remember in the beginning when I talked about GMOs, I said, you know, you do have to be open-minded and say, could it be good use for good or whatever? On the surface, this sounds like an example of that. We're not genetically modifying the food. We're, we're spraying a, a, a pesticide that only targets specific pests. Doesn't hurt anybody else. Jacks up their genetic code. They can't develop a resistance to it. It's not a poison. It's not a toxin. It causes them to mutate themselves to death. Do you know what mutating yourself to death is, is, is called by other words in human beings and animals? Cancer. Huh. This doesn't sound okay to me. And the, um, the, the ruling right now on it from even the government is, yeah, we're not so sure about that. Um, here's the so far response. The um, EPA panel that took a look at this at the first uh, point, this guy Rigaldo says, 
Uh, what's more, Monsanto's own discoveries have underscored the surprising ways in which double-stranded RNA can move between species. Not exactly a comforting aspect of a technology Monsanto hopes to see widely used in the farm fields. Um, however, um, Monsanto says they have RNA-enhanced corn crop in the pipeline, a corn type engineered to contain RNA that was designed to kill a common pest called the rootworm. It is currently pending approval from the EPA, and the Monsanto spokeswoman said, we are planning for full commercial launch by the end of the decade, pending key regulatory approvals. In other words, we're planning to be able to buy our way into the system by the end of the decade. How do you feel about this? Those of you that have even said, Jack, the GMO thing's overblown. You're all worried about Roundup. Roundup's not that bad. You're so a little bit of it in the, the food you eat. You're just, do you think it makes sense to actually wholesale spray a chemical that causes RNA-led genetic mutations in organisms and say, well, it'll probably dissolve in the digestive system? And, oh, we can target it for specific species. It won't affect other species. When Monsanto's entire concept is that we can take and use RNA and mugenic viruses to take strands from one creature, put it into another, and make it work. Guys, this is uh, what I said eight years ago when I started the Survival Podcast. The problem with GMO is they will never stop, and they will never think before they act. All they will ask is the question, can we make money with this? This one scares me. This one actually, their marketing is being safer and less of a problem. This looks worse than anything they've ever done. But I'd like your thoughts on it. Again, you can read the full article. Uh, and I have to say, some of what Monsanto says about it worries me more than what the people that are sounding the alarm are saying about it. So next is a question from Jack. Jack... Jack says to me, Jack, email and ask your opinion using an air pistol for home defense in the UK. This is due to my government's draconian laws on guns, and it is impossible to get a handgun and very difficult to get a shotgun. Though I'm going through the process to get a shotgun, it's illegal to store it under my bed as it has to be kept under lock and key. The police do spot checks that it is kept so. My reasoning is that I've seen fingers blown off using an air pistol. On YouTube, my main reason is my main reason is confronted with an intruder is deterrence. The Beretta air pistol is almost indistinguishable from the real thing, um, and I reason six pellets from one of these is better than nothing. Then I would just pick up a baseball bat if that didn't work. If that fails, rely on four years of jujitsu and boxing training. Thank you very much for the shows. Keep me going through my fourteen-hour days, Jack from Brighton, England, UK. Um, I guess you could do worse. I mean, frankly, I don't want to get shot in the face with a, a CO2-powered air pistol. I will tell you that one of the problems those things have is they do tend to leak over time. So you put your CO2 cartridge in there, and I've seen some sit for a year and be fine, and I've seen some sit for a week and kind of be completely empty. So I don't know how reliable it is. Assuming it works, as soon as you, you, you check on it. Uh, if somebody's trying to get in your house, and they see that come out, and they're not armed with a weapon themselves... It may back them off long enough to slam the door shut, you know. It may scare them away. And, yeah, you sh you're talking about very close personal type stuff going on here. So if you answered the door with it, you know, in hand and hidden, and that person tried to force their way in the door, and you, like, shot them in the face, uh, specifically the eyes, uh, I I'm sure it would be quite effective. Here's my question for you, though. Assume you do that. 
Uh, how does your nation view that? Because I remember a story, and I'll see if I can find it. If I do, I'll put it in the show notes. If not, you just have to take my word for it. It was in the UK. I covered this many, many years ago. I was still driving in the car when I was recording or I covered this. A guy and his friend come home. They catch a man raping this man's daughter in his home, in the act of raping her. The man grabs a cricket bat that he, so a cricket bat is like, uh, it looks like a cross between a baseball bat and an oar for a boat, for those who don't know the game of cricket. You can jack somebody's shit up really good with a cricket bat. Yanks the cricket bat down out of the, off the wall, beats the shit out of this guy, subdues him, him and his buddy, beat this guy's ass, like totally has it coming. The police come and arrest the guy for rape, and arrest, arrest the man and his friend for assault. And I believe if I remember the story right, the guy that beat the sh- the father that beat the shit out of the guy with the bat, because the bat was considered a deadly weapon, faced possibly greater charges and a longer term sentence than the guy that was caught in the act of rape. Your country sucks, dude. I'm sorry. So my my suggestion might be to find the most effective means of defense that would result in the least amount of possible action, though I'd rather fight that court case than have my throat slit with a knife, which is the number one way you get killed in England now, by the way. They're really good at knife attacks in England because no one has a gun. And you can say all the shit you want about the knife has the advantage over the gun. That is a huge it depends. When you see shit on YouTube... You know, with the 21-foot rule, and the guy has a knife, and the other guy has a gun, and the holster guy runs out of the guy. That's not how shit works generally in real life. Because I could tell you the same thing. You give me a gun, and I get to take the initiative, the guy with the other gun is probably dead. And if you you know, you know come up behind someone and stab him in the back with a knife, well, if they come up behind you and shoot you in the back with a gun. And the difference is I don't have to get as close. So in the end, when people are armed with guns, people think twice about pulling a knife. Here's my other concern with the air pistol. It's not so much about how effective would it be, because again, I, I'm going to fully admit, if, if somebody tries to break in my house and I just I didn't have my gun on me and sitting on the, the, the table where I could reach it with my hand was a, you know, a CO2 pellet pistol that was ready to go, and I picked it up and shot him like six times in the face, I'm pretty sure that I've got the initiative at that point no matter what. Okay? But... If, if I'm in a situation where a person's attacking me and I pull something that looks like a gun, it's indistinguishable in your own words, and they use lethal force on me, they're totally justified, especially if it's a police officer. So I don't know if you might be better off with something like a pepper spray or a mace and what the legalities of that are, or a great big can of wasp and hornet spray. Now I'm going to give you the wasp and hornet spray mythology. Police officers recommend it over mace. No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. It's all bullshit. And on the can, in the United States anyway, it says to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling is a violation of federal law. The label does not specify spraying it in the face of somebody trying to break in your house. But if it just happened to be there, and you answered the question that way. Oh, this guy tried to break in my house with a knife. He's trying to push his way in. I, I just grabbed it and sprayed him, and he ran away. Okay. All right? But if you say, well, I keep it there. These are technicalities you need to understand your own laws for. Because personally, in my opinion, if a man comes home and catches somebody raping his daughter and caves his skull in to his ass with a cricket bat, and the guy's dead, so what? 
Don't rape my daughter in my house, asshole, and I won't kill you with a cricket bat. But that's not necessarily how the law works. So pellet gun as a defensive tool. Effective? Probably more so than nothing. The right tool for this situation, even in this draconian situation? Likely not. And I do know some of these nations actually have restrictions on weapons based on their energy output. And some things that you would think are legal are actually illegal in certain areas. So that's something you got to check into, too. I would look for another angle here. Uh, now, shit at the fan. Hey, anything that I can get my hands on, from a sharp stick to a pellet gun to a fully automatic 50 BMG, is up for grabs. All right, let's take another one. And hopefully that makes sense. Um, and before we go to the next one, I tried to find that article, and I couldn't. It's pretty old. It's six, seven years old at least. And uh, what I did find is a very high incidence of pe people being assaulted and beaten with cricket bats in the U.K. There's a lot of stories about, there's so many stories about people being beaten or beaten to death or abused. Or I searched for, you know, rapist beaten with cricket bat, rapist beating women with cricket bats and then raping them that, you know, uh, I couldn't find it. Kind of proving my point. We don't have a lot of people beaten with bats or cricket bats in the United States where you might get double tapped if you try it. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, the next one comes from Steve-O, who's one of our uh, supreme admins at the TSP forum. It says, isn't it ironic, ironic the food stamp program part of the Department of Agriculture is pleased to be distributing the greatest amount of food stamps ever. Meanwhile, the Park Service... Also, a part of the Department of Agriculture asked us to please not feed the animals because the animals may grow dependent and not learn to take care of themselves. Uh, that is just his standard signature, but I thought I would read that for Monday's Dose of Irony. But he actually sends me an article uh, that he linked to about Liberland. Now, not Libertas, the virtual nation that I'm talking about, but Liberland. And it's called How One Man Plans to Build a New Libertarian Paradise in Europe. And I'm going to read this article to you because it covers everything pretty quickly. When he plunged a flag into the banks of the Danube and declared the birth of the Free Republic of Liberland, Vitjetka was dismissed by governments and media organizations as a joke. Yet one year and many diplomatic missions later, his vision of a libertarian paradise born on a patch of unwanted land has 400,000 would-be citizens, the backing of a range of political movements around the world, and even its own national beer. Thanks to the efforts of the Croatian Board of Police, Liberland has still technically not got a single inhabitant. Its seven square kilometers of boggy wetlands boasts just one dilapidated building and an abandoned hunting lodge. But speaking in an exclusive interview with the independent president, Jakarta reveals that his plans are nearly in place for a group of Liberlanders to break through that police blockade in such numbers that, quote, there is nothing they can do to stop it. Liberland lies on a Croatian-Serbian border roughly halfway between Zerbub and Belgrade, a product of a border dispute between the two countries lasting a quarter century. It lies on a portion of territory which neither country is willing to claim. In other words, nobody wants it. Quote, they made it a no-man's land, Mr. Jedekas says, after giving a speech at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London to a receptive audience of bankers, free marketers, and young conservatives. In the year since Liberal Lamb was founded on 13 April, Thomas Jefferson's birthday, Croatia has set up police patrols and arrested dozens of people from attempting to access the unexpectedly hotly disputed territory. 
While he could not access what he sees as his own land, Mr. Jedica was very busy meeting with sympathetic politicians around the world and setting up a website where people fed up with their own governments could register their interest in this venture and donate to the cause. Ever the optimist, Mr. Jedica says, quote, it was a good thing that Croatia shut the border. Quote, we needed one more year to discover everything we have to do in order to take proper care of our own borders, to sign an agreement with private security agencies, and to visualize what we want to do. Quote, we kind of appreciate what Croatia is doing at this stage, which is simply protecting our border from others who would like this, uh, sorry, would, would like this territory as well. That all is about to change, however. This weekend, Mr. Liberland and his volunteer ministers held a conference to discuss Liberland's future at Croatian Hotel, just five kilometers from the border. And in the summer, he plans to stage a state celebration in a field next to the distributed territory, which, if all goes to plan, could snowball into something much more. It is going to be a big media event, he says. We would like to invite 5,000 people with the best artists who support Liberland attending, And we already have two or three major festival organizers helping this, helping us. That could be the time when we actually take over control of this territory, he says, with a clear sense of anticipation. We are not pushing for it yet, but there's no way you can stop 5,000 people taking control over Liberland. Asked if he is essentially advocating a hostile takeover, Mr. Jaletka insists it would be better for Croatia to give the festival goers a green light for the move. But he adds, we are confident we will make it across the border. Take a look at how refugees crossing borders so easily now. There's nothing that will stop 5,000 people from crossing the border. And you can read the rest of it if you want to, but you get the point. He's basically saying, if enough of us just gather together, and just walk into this no-man's land that nobody wants anybody, it would be a political disaster for Croatian police to start shooting people. And it would be the only way to stop it. You can't arrest 5,000 people at one time. We've seen that doesn't work. You can try to use crowd dispersal techniques and whatever, but if people just all want to go there, eh, nobody wants this, this, this crap hole anyway. So once they're there, they need to have a, a, a plan, a supply line in place to get them what they need, et cetera, so they don't just get basically, you know, starved out and lay siege type of thing. But sounds like they got this plan well underway, and it may or may not work. Here's an interesting thing. So I've been talking about virtual nations, and there's a company called, or a thing called, I shouldn't call it a company, BitNation, And they've been talking about a lot of the exact same things and trying to set things up for that. Again, I'm not sure how far along they are. Some of the stuff, I know what it should do, but I don't know how it actually works yet. But they've just announced a strategic partnership with Liberland so that they can kind of merge. Now, think about this. You actually do have a piece of dirt somewhere. And this guy's gone out and met with countries. And you have enough countries in something like you use the system's own methods against them, the UN, that recognize and open diplomatic relationships with Liberland and say, we recognize these people. They took over an unwanted piece of dirt. Nobody wanted it for 25 years. They're there. They're taking care of it. They've said they're a border. No, no sovereign nation wanted to claim it until now. Bullshit. It's theirs. So you get a legitimate government recognized by at least some nations around the world, and they say, you know what? Liberland has put up citizenships for sale. We'll give passports to anybody that wants one from Liberland. We don't require you to denounce your home country, whatever. And it's enabled by a virtual nation apparatus. So Liberland becomes an online nation with a physical reality, a physical point. 
They even already have a beer brand that they're going to market around the world. Um, does that change the equation? What happens if that's successful? What does it mean if that's successful? What does it cause the rest of the governments around the world to try to do in response? Can In this day and age, can you go bomb something like that? Can you really? And Or is it a mistake? Or would we be better off just sticking the virtual route? Again, I'm for everybody trying everything. I just hope these guys are smart about the way they do it. And, and I'd like to see the number more like 10,000. I, I think if you have 10,000 people that just say, we're going to go over there now and we're going to say that it's ours, nobody else wants it, by the way, do you really want to mess with 10,000 people, even if you're armed Croatian police? I mean, I, I, I think that a lot of you should watch um, Winter on Fire about what happened in Ukraine. And when enough people want something, no matter how strong a government is, it's pretty hard to stop it. That's why they constantly want to keep you divided. Just saying. Anyway, you can check the article out. Again, I do recommend Winter on Fire as something for you to watch. And for those that will say it, no, it will never work, how many people said Bitcoin would never work just a few short years ago? I'm just saying the world's changing. And these technolo technological innovations are moving faster than the corporate apparatuses and the neo-fascist apparatuses that seek to contain them. And again, the fact that someone like me doesn't fully understand how all of these work is good because that means the you know monopolistic oligarchs surely do not understand how they work. They can't conceive of them working and they're already being defeated by them before they're even implemented in many ways. It's a long journey. There's a lot to do yet, but I think we're on the right path for creating really what comes down to voluntary associations. Well, let's take another one. This one will be really quick. Um, this comes from Brian from Cure Tees, LLC. Hi, Jack. Today we made our first sale via the member business directory and has already paid for the cost of listing in full. There's nothing but upside from here. I highly recommend that any of your listeners with small businesses who have not yet already done so register today. At $5 for a basic listing, you can't beat the value anywhere. We offered a 10% discount for all your listeners so that we can track business we do through the directory encourage the community to try our herbal teas. It seems like that's working. We're also looking for opportunities to buy from other members within the business listings. We love the idea. We plan to upgrade to a sponsored listing once we get a bigger, a little bigger. My wife is due with our first baby uh, any day now, and this is strictly a side hustle for now since both of us work full-time jobs. As soon as life settles down a little, we're going to start aggressively working to grow the business into something that can be full-time for at least one of us. In the meantime, we appreciate the support of the TSP community. We love your show, and we learn something from every episode, even when we disagree with you. Thanks, Brian, Cure Tees, LLC. Well, there you go. Somebody's making it happen. And the business directory is a way to make it happen. And so all this talk of virtual nations, we are not with the business directory to the point of a virtual nation at all. Who knows? Maybe it could evolve that way. But if you like the idea of virtual nations, you start off by doing business with people with common ideals. So I, I really recommend you at least consider checking to see what's available at the business directory before you make a purchase. Because then you're dealing with other members of your community. And I believe TSP in some ways is a nation. Remember, a nation is a group of people bound by common ideals that voluntarily associate each other with each other and try to treat each other based on those ideals. A state is a place with land and borders and laws and compulsion that requires you to do certain things because you exist on that piece of dirt. I'm just saying, check out the business directory, tspbiz.com. 
Next one's an interesting question. He says, question for Jack. Curious what your thoughts are on debt that cannot be avoided in certain pursuits. For example, becoming a doctor. There is pretty much only one way, and currently, even if you work your ass off during school, you cannot become a medical doctor without debt. Similarly, flight school or another profession in which if one really examines the structure of the industry, unless you move at a snail's place, you are going to go into significant debt in order to achieve becoming a professional pilot, fixed wings, or rotocraft. These are just a few examples, but I think that people would like to keep having doctors and pilots. Uh, just curious what you think accumulating debt in order to enter one of these professions. I hate a student loan debt, but and I am with you on other debt being a disease. However, in some cases, it's damn near impossible to move forward, at least without some debt. Just curious as to what you think. Thanks for all you do, Andrew. Okay, so Andrew, here's how I feel. Okay, so this is the problem with that thinking for a lot of people. Pilots, I'm going to put that on the shelf. I'm talking about, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. These are the two where it's so expensive, i got to go into debt. Okay, so before you're going to become a doctor or a lawyer, you're going to get a four-year degree. A, a, a maybe pre-law, pre-med, that type of thing, but a four-year degree. So what happens is, because the person going to do that generally has good grades and qualifies to get into good schools, and I got to be going to like a top school so I can get into so-and-so medical school or whatever, and uh, bullshit, uh, just saying. Uh, so what the person does is they spend an awful lot of money on that pre-law Uh, or pre-med degree. And by the way, to be a lawyer, you do not need a pre-law degree. It's it's helpful, but I have a nephew who's going to college right now, and his degree is going to be in history, and his intent is to become a lawyer. I'm not backing either decision. I'm just saying it's it works if he makes it work. Okay. So then the person goes into massive amount of debt in their first four years of college. And because I'm going to go to med school and I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to make lots of money. So my view is that if that's your approach, you have to understand that a lot of these things have extremely high washout rates. The number of people who I'm going to go to college and be a doctor who do not become a doctor is 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 extreme. They just give up. It's too hard. It's too complicated. It's higher than engineer, a lot of the engineering pursuits, by the way which have huge dropout rates. Do you know what has a higher dropout rate uh, as a profession than people that go to school because they're going to be a doctor, by the way? Veterinarian. It's actually more academically difficult to get through veterinary school than medical school because you have more than one species, and that species can't talk to you and tell you what's wrong. Okay, So I think that the way that medical school and some of these other high-level professions that require uh, a large amount of money to pursue have to be approached as do not assume that you're going to be a doctor when you're 18 and enter college because you're going to be at best case 22 with a bachelor's degree before you move on in that pursuit. And a lot of shit happens in those four years. Those four years are defining years, either 18 to 22, 19 to 23, somewhere in that range, 17 to 21 for some people, depending on when you start school. Your outlook about the world and what you really want from the world will be so much different over that four-year period. And I say even people that like they take the you know one year off, they go into college at like twenty, and they're at twenty-four, twenty to twenty-four, and that's just, just that whole early twenties, your whole outlook changes, and what you want changes, and how you actually respond to adversity and how complicated things are, and then looking at the total. So you have to approach that degree as though it's just a four-year degree, and I hope to go on. So that means we have to be very conservative with any debt we take on in that period. Then we have our four-year degree. We've qualified to get into medical school. We know we're a good candidate. 
We know that's what we want. And we know that a doctor is going to make a good salary one way or another, and you're going to be able to service the debt. And you still want to do it? Then that's the way that you get it done. It's not the only way to get it done. You can go join the military and be a doctor in the military for a number of years, and they'll pay your entire debt. And there's other programs like that. So look into other ways that you can do that. There's people that want to be school teachers. They get a degree in education, and then they teach a certain number of years in certain school districts that you know you might have to dodge a bullet or two, but when you're done with it, your debt's forgiven. There's other ways to do that. Okay, so make sure you're doing what you're doing for the right reason. Now, pilot. Okay. Um, this is one of those situations where you have to determine if it's what you really want. And there's a future in both fixed wing and roto wing. Um, it's not quite as glamorous or as easy as a lot of people seem to think that it is. Another, that's another place, though, where military is an option. If you have the right vi vision and the right aptitude, then you can learn to fly rotary in the United States Army. And there's no cost there. And I don't know what you got to do after that to get into the civilian market, but it can't be anywhere near what it is for someone starting with nothing. If you've been trusted to fly Blackhawks or, you know, OH-58s or... Uh, Apaches, for God's sakes, then you should be able to fly a freaking news helicopter, right? Or helicopter tours or whatever. Uh, or people out the, the, the flight decks and what have you. But let me tell you, just for an example, what the cost and the return ratio is. So my son thought about this when he was a teenager. We took him to a place where we actually got to ride around in a little training helicopter and fly it a little bit and get some experience and determine if you want to go to school there. I believe the total cost of the school was $45,000. We had a bunch of money put away in a 529A plan, which is for college. And he would have to pay interest and penalties to get the money out of that. That's why I don't advise anybody to do the college savings accounts at all, period. Tax deferred. Here's how I look at that. You're putting money away for your kid's college. It shouldn't be at high risk anyway. It's not going to be making high returns. Pay the damn taxes on it. Keep the money available in case the kid grows up and wants to start a business. He might. And you might hear why you might want to do that toward the end of today's show, okay? Um, but he would have, but so let's just, we, we figured out and said, okay, well, if you want to do this, then, then you, you, you pay the interest and penalties and you, you get your money and you go do it. And he decided he didn't want to. Here's part of why. Spend $45,000 to do this. You get out of school. You have almost no flight time. So then if you get flight time. So like, She was basically saying, like, what we generally do is people that want to get flight time and want a job, we hire them as instructors to get their initial flight time. And they make, like, $14 to $15 an hour to do that. You ain't paying back a lot of debt with that. And then when you get enough flight time, then you can get a job doing something like flying people out to oil rigs and stuff like that. And that's competitive because it's kind of an entry-level position. It doesn't pay that great, but it pays better than $14 an hour. And if you do that for a couple years and you have enough flight time, then maybe you can get on to some other things that are a little bit better. And, like, the, the people that make the, the great money are the ones that fly, like, the, the jet helicopters for, like, life, light, uh, life flight and stuff like that. But those guys have 10 years usually and by the time they do. Well, my kid heard that, and he's not all about adversity, so I don't want to do that, right? And, you know. I think there were other reasons he didn't want to do it. but So that's another example. How much debt are you willing to go into for that? So I think it comes down to the fact that 
in each situation, you have to evaluate your potential for success with the reality and the numbers, and you run the numbers, and you make a decision based on the numbers. And you don't make a decision based on the numbers of what a doctor's salary is when you're a, an entry, uh, a freshman entering college. You just don't. You make a decision there based on what you could do with the four-year degree that you're pursuing with the understanding you may not complete it. Check the dropout rate of college people, even people with good grades. And then you make the next decision about going forward by running those numbers a second time and having a better understanding of your dreams and your aptitude. And I think we have to approach everything like that. And they don't teach you that because, well, college enrollment would go down quite a bit. Quite a bit. Next up, real quick, Stephen Harris has a, uh, a new little prepper group that he's, he's doing uh, on-site get-togethers. It says, Jack, could you make an announcement for me, please, on the air at your discretion? I've started a Pittsburgh preparedness group. Our first meeting is Thursday, April 28th at 7 p.m. at the Pine Township Community Center. All details on the meeting, its address and location, and what will we talk about are at pghprep.org. Note it's .org, not .com. pgh.org. We're limited to 50 people for the first meeting, so you need to fill out a form on the website if you're coming, so we know how many. I've been advertising on Facebook, and I have a paid account on Meetup, so I've been trying really hard to find some locals. Thank you, Steve. And he thinks he's got a bunch of people coming. This would be cool. Um, this is on April 28th, so it's three days away. And again, it is at the Pine Township Community Center, but you got to register to go. I will put a link to pghprep.org in the show notes today. And I think this should be an example. Like, if you're in Pittsburgh, go to Steve's. But if you're like, man, I'm in, you know, I don't know, Portland, Oregon, or Los Angeles, California, or Dallas, Texas, or Tallahassee, Florida, or wherever, Chibip, Chibipville, I wish there was one where I am. Start one up. Start one up. A lot of you guys have. Meet like-minded people and start building community. So congrats to Steve on doing that. And uh, again, if you're near Pittsburgh, consider going. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, so last one of the day is is really an interesting one, and it. It's not going to result in a jack rant at all about how bad education sucks in government schools, but it does show the ineptitude of the current school system to actually be preparing our students for the opportunities that are available in a modern age. When we're using a, a system that, again, is based on you know 1800s concepts, it really is. Now, they might have computers in the classroom and stuff like that, but and do some basic computer courses and all. But in the end, we're not mentally preparing children to become young adults and go into the world that is the, the 2000s, okay? We're just not. Um, let me read it to you. Former Maria Carrillo student founds tech startup uh, Aptitude. all right? A high school student with a perfect 4.0 cumulative grade point average Chris Kelsey never bothered to consider his college options. He was too busy planning his future. Now 18 and CEO of a global app, software, and website development firm, Kelsey chose a direct, if unconventional, path to success. He dropped out of Maria Carrillo High School in Santa Rosa midway through his senior year. The risk paid off in ways even the young entrepreneur couldn't imagine. His year-old company, Aptitude, now includes a development team of 35 high-tech professionals with business projected at $5 million this year. $5 million. Aptitude works with individual startups and established companies to design, build, and market mobile apps and websites. 
with client Dan McDonald of Dan McDonald Studios calling the team, quote, a dream to work with, end quote. Last year, Kelsey earned an income of more than $300,000, assuring his once-worried family and friends that being a high school dropout wasn't a worst-case scenario after all. Quote, I'm a big person on, you never know until you try. I throw myself out there into the wild, Kelsey said. When a accomplished student announced at 17 he wasn't interested in completing high school, the reaction wasn't surprising. My dad yelled at me a lot. My mom cried a lot, Kelsey said. My friends said I was being stupid. I completely understood where they were coming from. They just wanted what's best for me. Kelsey was compelled to follow his gut instinct. He had been considering career paths possibly as a dentist or pharmacist, but the passion was elsewhere. Deep down, I felt it wasn't really what I wanted to do, he said. I researched blogs about successful businesses and entrepreneurs and took note of several books repeatedly mentioned. Two books first published in the mid-1930s made notable impact, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich and Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Those books really changed my life, Kelsey said. There was something that directed me to read those books. The team dabbled in programming and website development when he was younger, but wasn't a master by any definition. He spent much of his time while at Maria Carello playing action video games like Armoth 2 and Battlefield into the wee hours of the night. He put down the video controls when he got serious about developing a business. Quote, I was changing my mindset, end quote, he said. His barber had shared her interest in developing an app, and Kelsey soon discovered there were plenty of people like her with good ideas, but no course for creating or marketing them. He tested a few business ideas, and just a month after leaving school, signed his first contract for $16,500, for those that don't speak that way, to develop a travel app to monitor itineraries and other details for students on study trips. He saw the potential to put together a business model, attend to high-tech trade events, and shared his ideas and ambitions. Quote, even when I tell people my story, they will assume I'm 25, he said. But when you really are determined, other people see that and feel that. Through research, networking, and word of mouth, Kelsey gathered a team he considers standouts in the industry with specialists in various technologies. I wanted to get the best of the best for what they do, he said. We're able to get things done very efficiently and effectively. Aptitude focuses on apps, but we build websites as well, Kelsey said. We're also doing marketing for clients now. He has a virtual headquarters, no brick-and-mortar office necessary, in San Francisco where he now lives in a vacation rental, at least temporarily. Everything is changing so quickly. I don't want to tie myself down to one place. He said, my life is completely changing every three or four weeks, and it's been that way for months and months. Still, he says, he remains the same silly and lighthearted person he always was. When I started out, this whole global scale concept wasn't even in my mind. He now has clients in 10 countries and development partners in London, Australia, the Ukraine, and Mexico. Kelsey's upcoming business travels will take him to Miami, the Dominican Republic, China, and Dubai. His focus is to provide top-quality services on time and on budget. Integrity says it's paramount to aptitudes, growth, and success. Quote, our goal is to blow clients away in every area. His team of developers includes those more than double or triple his age, many of whom's resumes include successful apps with millions of downloads. Kelsey's age and relative life experience have not been deterrents. He often falls within clients' target demographics, something he considers an edge. Clients will say, I like that you're young. It's definitely worked to my advantage. It usually is positive. Kelsey started Absolute at 17 without help of mentors. 
or investors. He purposely abandoned the safety net of high school diploma and has been working nonstop to assure his decision was the right one. Kelsey wasn't always the most assured teen, but he's gaining confidence with every step of success. Polite and professional and without a trace of youthful arrogance, it's only with prodding that he shares his income and the fact that he paid cash for his first car, $21,000 on a used Lexus. Oh, I love this kid. He's now considering a Tesla as a business car. The teen is grateful for his success and happy his parents are breathing easier. For more information, visit aptitude.com. Well, I, I just want to ask anybody out there that would be asked the generic question, should a 17-year-old that is halfway through his senior year of high school ever drop out of high school? If you would say no when asked it generically, and then would you give me one compelling reason that this, this child, this young man, should have wasted another half a year of his life before getting started on what he knew he wanted to do and was able to do better than most people that would get angry about that statement could ever do. And I know what you're tempted to do, and I even am tempted to say this, but that's the exceptional person. That's the guy, the kid with a 4.0 GPA, he could have slept through class for six months and got his, his diploma with an A. And that meant he was so gifted that he's the kind of person that can do this and not everyone can. What about that 16-year-old that's in shop class right now making a cabinet more beautiful than people are going to go out and spend thousands of dollars on? What about him? Is there a compelling reason for him to stay in high school? The answer is there most likely is. But we should be open to the concept that maybe there isn't. Maybe there isn't. Maybe it's not right for everybody. Maybe even the concept of homeschooling, private schooling, etc., that even in any way mimics or mirrors what government schools do. It's not right for everybody. Maybe there are people that are better suited to completely different paths. Or maybe there's people like this kid. School seems to have worked out just fine for this kid. I actually think that if I were a government school, instead of, and I know what their reaction is, oh, it's so terrible, he could have gone, he could have went to MIT. Yeah, right. Instead, he's going to make enough money to probably donate a freaking building to MIT. So shove that in your rear. I would say, as a government school, look what we did. We gave this kid such an amazing education that he decided he didn't need the last little bit of it, took it and did this with it. That's what your kid could be doing if they made the most out of what we offer. And they would be right for some and not others. For some and not others. I mean, I think it's great. I, I don't like government schools as a concept. I don't like their compulsory nature as a concept. But I think that, you know, the basics, everybody that wants to, that's, that, that, that tries, can learn basic reading, writing, and math in, in, in government school by the time they're in fifth grade. And be able to at least pick up a piece of paper, know what it says, understand it, communicate to somebody else what it says, look at a couple numbers, add them together, divide them, multiply them, etc. Understand the very basics of science and the, the very basics of historical context. I, I think government schools do an okay job getting those basics into people's heads. And, and I think the reality is most of what you need for that could be taught to you in a single year. Especially if we just taught kids how to read and do math. And then we gave one year of actual instruction when they're like 12 or 13. You could, most people would remember just as much from that process as they do right now from 13 years, K through 12. Do you know one of the, I, I just learned this from a comment by Sue, Sue LaPrice 
about my question about the legalities of grandparents teaching children at home in Texas. That back, I think it was back in the 80s, some time ago, there was a test given to high school teachers. So you took a whole bunch of high school teachers. And uh, let, me, let me get the comment up so I get the numbers exactly right. Here it is. If I remember correctly, in the early years of Texas homeschool legal battles, the Lieber case, the state coincidentally decided to test all its public school teachers using a high school graduation test of the time. The teachers over overwhelmingly failed to pass the test. And homeschoolers used this in the fight to eliminate government interference in the individual's private homeschool. So in other words, in the 80s, I think is when this, this thing came up, the government was saying, we need qualified teachers to be able to teach these children, and parents are not qualified to do so. And we need to know that when these children come out of high school, they have a legitimate high school diploma. And they have been taught by qualified professionals to achieve that goal. So they took the graduation exam and gave it to the teachers that were qualified to teach for that test, and they failed it. They failed it. I won't get too angry. I promise no jack rat. Jack rat. But I'm not surprised by that. I don't even think that is really negative toward the teachers. I think it's negative toward the schooling. It proves that the majority of shit that we put in kids' heads for 13 years of their life is not necessary. It's irrelevant. And here's what you would find. If you took a bunch of adults who, who, who took school halfway seriously and gave them the same test, they would probably fail at about the same ratio as the school teachers. But if you took 20 individuals and only tested them on the things that they actually used in their life. You found somebody that really went into history, somebody that really went, and, and you te tested them on the things that mattered, and you combine their score, they would blow it away. Which means the relevant experience in your life has far more to do with what you know and, and, and practice and develop and actually make part of your life than 13 years of programming. And I, I just think that success stories like this show how inadequate schools are preparing our children for the future. There's almost no talk of entrepreneurship in government schools. We're preparing children for the concept of go get a job. You know? And there's less and less jobs every day. Just my thoughts. On that note, I didn't really think about it when I selected today's song. So back when I started the Survival Podcast, I went out to Podsafe Audio and found some music I could use as intro. Long before um, The Revolution Is You was, was written and performed by Greg Yos. Um, and I selected this song. It's called Another Day, Another Dollar by a musician named Bob Moss. And it just seemed like right for the show in the beginning. Because, you know, another day, another dollar. Can't remember where your money went, right? You can scream and you can holler. But either way, it all gets spent. Right? That's one of the lines in the song. And... Today I look at that and think about what we just talked about. That's, that's what employment is today. A job results in another day, another dollar thinking. That you're always going to be in debt. That you're nobody in this country unless you owe somebody. I can't tell you how many people I grew up around. When I say grew up, I mean in my early 20s. People that were 10 years older than me that I hung out with as friends. They used to say shit like this. And I'm like, geez, what the hell's wrong with you? You know, One of my best friends, a guy named Brian, used to say that all the time. And uh, he was about 15 years older than me, and I think he's kind of like living the same as he was back then, which ain't terrible, but ain't great. 
And I look at like the comparison in, in my life as I grew up, and I, I and you know became a father and go see this is the difference in the mentality. You're nobody unless you owe somebody money, and I'm like, the more you owe people, the less you get to be what you want. A different philosophy there. But that's what government schools are training our children to do, be cogs in that system. So when you listen to this song and you think, I don't like the way this song sounds anymore, especially those of you who were here from the beginning and you used to listen to it and think it was kind of a cool song, and you might listen to it now and go, good song, but I don't like the visual in it, and I don't think it really applies to me anymore, good. That means it's working. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler It really doesn't It's been I saw your brother Just this morning Standing in that unemployment line The line was long But boy, he was worried Scream.